0: And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I have been looking forward to this podcast since the first of the year because of all of the work that we do. I think, and many people who followed our work uh, agree, that this is the most important work that we do in terms of helping investors improve their financial future. No, we can't see into the future. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't have the ability to make the market go up or go down. It does what it wants to do, but we do have a lot of evidence, in some cases almost a 100 years of ev- of evidence that lead us to believe that what I'm about to share with you is real, or let's say, very likely could be real for the future as it has been real in the past. And this particular information, the topic is the ultimate buy and hold worldwide equity portfolio. The purpose of this is to show the implications of building a portfolio on the back of more than one asset class. And that is what a lot of people do. A lot of people have most of their money in what's called the total market index, both U.S. and international. And basically, that picks up mostly large companies, mostly growth companies. And what I want to show here, and we've been updating this information for, we're not sure, 15 plus years. But we want to show you with the latest information we have from 2019, what it looks like today. We first actually built portfolios like this in the mid-90s to show people how to take advantage of these different asset classes. And over the years, we've formalized it, and we've done podcasts and, and videos and books and articles and workshops in the hopes of uh, encouraging people to take advantage of this history. So I hope you will download these couple of tables. We're we're going to be looking at a portfolio that is 50-50 U.S. international. These are all equities. There's no fixed income here. We'll be talking about fixed income next week. And then helping you hopefully determine how much fixed income you should have in your portfolio. But I'm only focused on equity here. And so, we'll talk about the 50-50 U.S. International, and we'll also talk about 70-30 U.S. International. Some weeks from now, we'll even talk about all U.S. I think you'll find that an interesting study. So, let's focus on this first table, the 50-50 table. And I'm going to help you build eight different portfolios. Each one is in some fashion going to look different from the other. Each one is hopefully going to move up the scale in terms of return. Hopefully, if, if, if we get this right, at the same time as we increase the return, we have minimal impact on the risk that we try our very best to keep you at about the same amount of risk as you would be taking in the S&P 500. And by the way, as we've talked about many times, if if I could show you how to make even an extra half of 1% for a lifetime, that could be life-changing. Well, we're going for a lot more than a half a percent here. But we've got to get started with the S&P 500 because that is the most common uh, equity asset class in the United States. And and the return historically is virtually the same. Over 90 years of data, the same as a total market index because it's these very large, large companies in the S&P 500 that drive the return at the end of the day. So if you put $100,000 in the S&P 500 in 1970, and if you left it in there, didn't add any more, didn't take any out, it's called a lump sum investment. No dollar cost averaging in, no distributions coming out. And one of the marvelous things about a lump sum investment is at the end of 50 years, if you took all those different years of returns, one year up 22, one year up 12, one year down 6, if you take them all and you throw all those numbers into a bag, and then start drawing the numbers out randomly and building a 50-year experience. When you don't add money and when you don't take any money out, you get exactly the same return regardless of when those returns happened. Some people don't believe that until they go check on it, and it turns out that that's the way it works. The time when you really care about, about the returns is if you're a first-time investor, you want the earliest years to be bad and the later years to be good. When you are a retiree, you want the early years to be good. And if you've got to suffer bad years, have that happen later when you've built the portfolio up and it's bigger because returns were good. But in this case, it doesn't matter when the declines or the advances happened. Whatever that money, that $100,000 invested in this pool in the S&P 500 would have grown to $15,378,660 regardless of when each particular return happened. But if we made a simple, small, baby step change and instead of having all the money in the S&P 500, we took 10%, $10, $10,000 out of the 100 and put it into U.S. large cap value. And not any particular money manager who tried to pick the best stocks, but just go into an index. Now, indexes are all not... They're not built the same. You could have large cap value indexes built with different size large cap and different degrees of value. But we have used the work of DFA Dimensional Funds, a mutual fund family driven by academics, and uh, and and these these indexes. And by the way, all of these asset classes have had uh, expenses uh, taken out of the returns just as if they were being managed. In fact, in some cases, you could get people to manage these kind of portfolios for even less than what are reflected here in this uh, study. But that ten percent, that baby step into large cap value, the fifteen point four million dollars grows to be worth sixteen point nine. You go from ten point six percent return for the S and P five hundred to ten point eight. All you did was increase the return by two tenths of one percent, and you added a million and a half dollars. And by the way the volatility was virtually the same. Even though the large-cap value made more money, which is part of the reason you have more money, by putting that small amount in along with the S&P 500, uh, the risk hasn't hasn't budged. But now we're going to add another asset class, this time in portfolio three, we're going to have 80% in the S&P 500, 10% in U.S. large-cap value, and 10% in U.S. small-cap blend. And now the return goes from 10.8 to 11 So in total we have added four tenths of one percent. The volatility, the standard deviation is still virtually the same, and the and and the value of the portfolio is eighteen point one million. Well, it turns turns out there's not only large-cap blend, that's the S&P 500, and large-cap value, but there's small-cap blend and small-cap value. So we're going to add 10% to small-cap value. We now have four asset classes with 70% of it in the S&P 500 and 30% spread amongst the other three, and now you are at $21.6 million with an 11.3% compound rate of return. And the standard deviation is virtually still the same. We've got one more U.S. asset class. That's U.S. REITs, Portfolio 5, Baby Step of $10,000 starting out along with the S&P 500 and the other U.S. asset classes. And now we have an 11.4% compound rate of return and $22.3 million and again standard deviation is virtually the same now i'm going to do something very big in one fell swoop portfolio 6 is going to take 10% each of four different international asset classes large cap blend large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value. We have matched the same asset classes internationally as we already had in the s in, uh, in the uh, US uh, holdings. And when we do that, the return goes from 22.3 million to 29.4 million and still the standard deviation is very close to the S&P 500. Next week, when we look at the fine-tuning table, you'll be able to see the difference in return between the S&P 500 and these these, uh, worldwide portfolios, and you will see the standard deviation. One more portfolio here to build the worldwide equity portfolio, emerging markets, and the emerging markets, risky, very risky. And it is interesting when you add the emerging markets, just 10%. It does raise the volatility a little bit, but not that it would scare somebody. You see, what scares people is when they look at the pieces. It might scare you if you woke up one morning and found out you had Enron in your portfolio and Enron was going broke. Well, most of us did in indexes. That's how indexes work. But it was one little piece And you also have these little pieces of asset classes. There are times when emerging markets are at the bottom of returns. And there are times, sometimes for four or five years in a row, where emerging markets are either the number one or number two asset class in the world. But over this 50 years, oh, and I should mention, emerging markets weren't around for the whole 50 years. But we add them as soon as we get them. It was in the 80s. I don't recall the exact year. But the bottom line is is that the compound rate of return with all 10 is 12.6%. 2% better than the S&P 500. Life-changing, particularly if we can get a hold of young people. But in, a, in probably about oh, four or five weeks, I'll be showing you distribution tables for retirees. And what you're going to see is even a half a percent more in a portfolio makes a big difference if you have a relatively long retirement. So this is the ultimate buy and hold. Worldwide, equity portfolio, 50-50, U.S. international. So what is so ultimate about it? Because it looks to me like there are a couple of asset classes that all by themselves would outperform, in fact... The laws of the universe dictate that one of these is better than the rest in this 50 years, and one of these is the worst in this 50 years. So we know the winners and the losers. But I'm looking to build and get investors to build a well-diversified portfolio so that you don't depend too much on any one asset class to get you where you're going, and certainly not any one company. And I am looking for the ultimate strategy, not only to be built on productive asset classes and massive diversification, but I want to do everything that I can to create peace of mind so that people don't feel like they have to get in and tweak things so one no asset class has to be a hero two you want them to be asset classes that have a long history of success and three you want to make it you want to make it simple now i'll have to, to tell the truth it isn't necessarily simple to rebalance these things once a year we'll talk about rebalancing in just a second But I've been told by amateurs that it takes about 30 minutes a year to manage a portfolio of these 10 equity asset classes plus a certain amount of fixed income that we're going to determine next week. Now, there is one more portfolio here, Portfolio 8. It is slightly more risky, not much, but slightly Certainly in the long term, it doesn't look uh, a whale of a lot different from Portfolio 7. But what it does is it focuses on value. It tries as best we can to get rid of the growth. Uh, But when you buy mutual funds, even index funds, you you rarely get a pure portfolio of all value or all growth. It's typically a mix. You you may even find in the S and P five hundred a portfolio of very large companies that there are a few mid cap companies, and in small companies that are supposed to be all value, you'll find a few growth small cap companies. But what we know is that over that same 50 years, a portfolio U.S. and international value, including a small slice of emerging markets value, you ended up with about a 12.6% compound rate of return. Now, those of you who have followed these portfolios over the years know that value used to have a pretty big premium over the rest. But... The last decade, really, value has been an underachiever. That's not unusual. That's the way the market is. Nobody's number one decade after decade. And the last decade has been a tougher period for value. And, by the way, a tougher period for small value as well as large. Now, I want to get back into this topic of rebalancing. I mentioned that briefly. Typically, people, if they believe they should have a certain percentage in whether it's two asset classes or a dozen, periodically they go in and they rebalance back to their original exposure to risk. And if you do that rebalancing, you have a choice as to how often you do it. There are some advantages of waiting to do it, waiting longer to do it, because that allows the more productive asset classes to outperform others. Because in the rebalancing process, what you're going to do is take money out of an asset class or a mutual fund that has done better than the others, take some out, put it into something that underperformed, And if you do that too often, you're taking those good profits away from that productive asset class and and redistributing too often. But I but I wanted to show you here on this, uh, there are two tables here. One is yearly rebalancing. That's the top table. And the bottom, the mid, the table in the middle of the page is rebalancing monthly. Monthly rebalancing, which means that every month you go in and take from the rich and give to the poor, or, in other words, take from the best performing and put some of that money to rebalance back to the original asset allocation uh, into the asset classes that have been less productive recently. That's how, that's how they get behind and need to be rebalanced And very often, after something has been really profitable, and when you rebalance and then put that money into something that hasn't been so good, but then it gets good, then the rebalancing means that you have been forced to buy more when something was low. So what happens to the risk and what happens to the return when you rebalance on a monthly basis? And as you'll see here, if we just went out to Portfolio 7, there are two things I notice in Portfolio 7. And that is that the return, instead of 12.6 in the yearly rebalancing, the Portfolio 7, in the monthly, it's 12.4. So you see, what happened was because you rebalanced more often, you were taking money away from those more profitable asset classes sooner, so it reduces your return. Not always, by the way, you can have asset classes that just uh, are by by randomness may be very profitable if you if you take from them very often, just based on the randomness of the movements in the market. But over a long period of time, the expectation would be that if you put more profitable with less profitable asset classes, that you're going to be taking money away from the more profitable to give to the less profitable. That is going to not only reduce your risk in this case, from 12.6 to 12.4 for Portfolio 7. But it also reduced your standard deviation from 18.9 to 16.9. So you reduce the volatility and you reduce the return. Before we move on to the seventy thirty uh, strategy, uh, I just I want to say that uh, I know you've got some questions. And I'm hoping that you'll send those questions in. I would like you, please, to be patient because I'm probably going to have to get through this series over the next few weeks, uh, four or five weeks, before I'll be able to get back to a Q&A format. Uh, I, just th- I think it's important that uh, I finish the... Ultimate buy and hold and the fine tuning and the distributions etc uh and and that all kind of fits together and then i'll have to go back and and uh, clean up and help people with the questions um, so uh, please be patient but but if you've got questions, go ahead and send them in and we'll hopefully uh be able to answer those after we get through this uh this more difficult period. Now, why 70 30? Why not uh, have just do it strictly 50 50? Academics recommend to be 50 50. Uh, but um, the fact is, some people are just more comfortable with uh, uh, investing in more more in their own country this isn't just with the us this is this home bias is something that is found um internationally in fact there are very small countries where they have public markets and the markets are small and yet the people who live there uh typically like to invest in the companies in their own country uh, even though they represent a very small portion of the global market. In some cases, countries that that are less than one or two percent of the total market. And yet the people in those countries prefer the home at that, that home bias, things they know and they're familiar with. So for people who want to be 70% US, you're going to see both here and when we get into the fine-tuning tables, you're going to see that it, the, the the difference is very small. Uh, you'll see one area where it's not small, and I'll explain why. But but the um, I I I think that in fact John Bogle told people that the uh, twenty to thirty percent is plenty of inter of international in the port in the portfolio. When we first started interviewing him. Uh, which would be, I guess, what, 20 20 years ago, uh, his position was all U.S. He didn't need international at all. So let's talk about the 70-30 and see what is different here that uh, would give you a sense that there'd be some sort of an advantage. Uh, Or let's say that if you you don't go 50-50 and you overweight to the U.S., uh, does it hurt your return? And if we if we do nothing more than simply go to portfolio seven, we can see the bottom line impact of being seventy percent U.S. and thirty uh, percent international, and it was twelve point five percent for portfolio seven, with a final total value of. 35.4 million versus 37.3 million with the 50 50. So there, there was an advantage uh, over this period of time. But if you have peace of mind that allows you to stay the course when uh, things internationally aren't doing well uh, and you're wanting to, if you get too committed, you'll want to bail out. Uh, so it may be the seventy thirty is uh, the right thing to do uh, where you'll see there's a difference is in portfolio eight and portfolio eight with seventy thirty it turns out to be forty three point three million versus thirty seven million with the fifty fifty and that's because the value in the U.S. outperformed the international. Doesn't mean it will for for the next 50 years, but that's what happened in this 50-year period. And as expected, if you rebalance more often, take away from the big winners sooner, you end up with the monthly rebalancing compounding in the case of portfolio 7, at two tenths uh, less compound rate of return, uh, which means that instead of thirty-five point five million with the annual rebalancing, you have thirty-three million. So, uh, the the good news is you reduce the risk. The bad news is it took the return with it. So, and that would be true with the all value portfolio as well. And if you actually agree with having these different asset classes in your portfolio, we have tried to to make it easy uh, for you to build a portfolio that way. For example, at Vanguard or at Fidelity, you could take our best-in-class ETFs and you could build a portfolio very easily of all ten of these asset classes, and so it's it it's not a mystery. It takes a little work, and of course, as you will find uh, in future weeks, um, we continue to try to accomplish a lot of this advantage by pinning it down to maybe just a couple of funds rather than having to have ten. But the 10 give you a massive amount of uh, of diversification, and uh, diversification not only in terms of big and small and value and growth, but U.S. and international as well. I hope you'll share uh, this podcast with with friends. And by the way, uh, anybody who is signed up when our new book comes out, uh, in the in, I think by hopefully by June or sooner, um, everybody's going to get a free copy of that book in an ebook format, and uh, so we're hoping that you will uh, get some of your friends on board, and we'll be able to help them as well as helping you. As always, thank you for listening, and um, and good luck.